So Money Episode 564, Mike Michalowicz, author of Profit First. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Listening to So Money, everyone. Welcome back. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Hope you're doing well. Imagine selling two multi-million dollar companies, becoming an angel investor. I mean, you're pretty much early retirement here, right? But losing it all, losing every single penny. That's exactly what happened to our guest today. He's a serial entrepreneur determined to figure out how to grow a healthy and strong company. He started all over again which led to his famous profit first formula. It's a way for businesses to ensure that they're going to be cash flow positive and that they're going to have money to survive. And now Mike is running his third multi-million dollar venture. He's a former small business columnist for the Wall Street Journal and author of the new book in its second iteration, Profit First, Transform Your Business from a Cash-Eating Monster to a Money-Making Machine. In our conversation, we talk about the wrong way many businesses crunch their numbers and Mike's very simple but profound switch that can help you start generating more money. And then hitting financial rock bottom, having to confess it to his family and the unforgettable move his then nine-year-old daughter made at that moment when he's confessing and crying and feeling just terrible that he says inspired him to turn his finances and ultimately his life around. Here's Mike Michalowicz. Mike Michalowicz, welcome to So Money. Very great to have you on the show. Congrats on the republication of Profit First. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on your show. Absolutely. So Repub, let's, let's share with the audience the good news. So you published this, self-published this book, and then a publisher came and said, we love what you've done with this book. We want to take you on and actually do this book again with you. How does that work? I, I, that's out of just my own curiosity. Yeah. So what happens in the, in the technical aspect, so I already worked with Penguin. Uh, I wrote a book called The Pumpkin Plan with Penguin, and uh, they then have what's called a first writer refusal for any subsequent books. And I told them about this concept, Profit First. I'm like, oh, an accounting book? No one wants that. And I said, yeah, I think you're right. No one wants it. I'm going to self-publish it. And he said, okay. So we came to an agreement on that and uh, self-published it. And it's been by far my most successful book. And the great irony is it's not an accounting book. So fast forward two years after self-publishing it, I got a call from Penguin. And they said, um, it's a different person there. So they didn't say, oops, we made a mistake. They said, hey, we're really, your, your book is really crushing it out there. You know, we really want it. Let's talk. So we negotiated it. Uh, I, but also gave me an opportunity to revise and expand the book to add stories now, success stories of businesses that have used Profit First and to fix a couple things that were quirky in the first version. And uh, now the book comes out February 21st this year. Fantastic. So let's talk about the book. The premise basically is that for generations, many business owners have been using standard accounting principles, sales minus expenses should equal your profit. But you want, you've basically turned that around and said that isn't actually a, a successful way to run your business. It's why so many businesses run themselves into the ground. So tell us your counter argument to that. Profit first is actually about 
the behaviors we have around money. So it's actually a behavioral system. And what is flawed with accounting is it is a logical system. It makes sense. Sales minus expenses equals profit. We've all been told that. You know, you have to have your revenue. You take away whatever expenses you incur, what left what's left over, what remains is profit. But behaviorally, it's the worst thing because when we put something as a remainder or a leftover, it means it's insignificant. Subconsciously, we just disregard it. And how it plays out in our finances is everyone is looking for sales. It's the first thing in the formula. So sell, sell, sell. Then expenses we look at next. And we don't call it expenses. We call it growth. So investment. Oh, you know, sell, sell, sell. Buy, buy, buy. We got to grow, grow, grow. And then profit is something we literally look at at the end of the year saying, oh, uh, are we profitable? And our account says, well, you're, you know, not this year, maybe next. Or our account says, oh, you, you have a $15,000 in, in profit. And then we say, well, where is it? And then the accountant says, well, you don't have it. It's an accounting profit. There's really nothing in your bank account. And then we say, damn it, maybe next year. So in profit first, we flip the formula because when we put something first, we prioritize it. Like, like I would never come out of the hospital after a health scare and say, now I'm going to put my health last. I say, now I'm going to put my health first. So what we do in profit first is sales are or what drives business. So it's sales minus profit. So you, you have to have sales. Then you subtract your profit. It's the pay yourself first principle, basically, applied to business. So you take a percentage of those sales, immediately store it toward profit, and then the remainder is expenses. And while this is a simple shift to do technically, the effect on the business is profound. We now are reverse engineering our profitability. So you predetermine the profit percentages you intend to achieve, and then you are forced to make sure your business works within parameters that can actually achieve those profits. I mean, it makes total sense to me because like you just said, it's very parallel to the personal finance principle of pay yourself first. So why wouldn't we pay our businesses first? How come this hasn't been more widely practiced? Why are you the one to turn the light bulb on? For everybody else. Uh, I don't know. Well, I do know why I did it is because the old formula wasn't working for me. Um, it, the system has been around forever. So it's not like I invented something. This is the pay yourself first principle we've been told to do in our private lives. So everyone, not everyone, but many people are aware of, you know, when, when money comes into your personal life, proactively reserve money for your retirement to pay yourself first. Reserve money maybe for that vacation you want uh, and then live off of the remaining money. And it works. The, the, the books like Richest Man in the Babylon, Think and Grow Rich. I mean, there's so many books dedicated to, in part, this concept of prepaying ourselves. I just realized this works for me personally, but why am I not doing this in my business? So I started doing it there. I don't know why anyone else, no one else thought of it prior or applied it there prior, but I took the principles and sure enough, my business shifted and it wasn't like over time. It shifted instantly. I started seeing my business in a whole new light. Profit started skyrocketing for myself and uh, it brought around a, a new sense of stability in my business life. So I say I make this into a book. I, I don't know why I'm the first. I know I needed it for my own business because I couldn't do the accounting. I tried to. I tried to read income statements and balance sheets and cash flow statements. I just never could comprehend it. I'd always resort to just looking at my bank balance and then taking actions based upon what I saw there. So Profit First allows me and everyone that does it to continue that normal behavior of logging into your bank accounts. But now that you have multiple bank accounts set up at your bank, that's the second part of it. It's like an envelope system. Now you have multiple accounts at your bank, perhaps one for profit, one for 
paying yourself a salary as an owner, maybe one for buying materials or inventory, another one for just the general operating expenses. Now that you see money pre-allocated to these different accounts, you know exactly what's available for what purpose before you spend the money. What's a good profit percentage? I mean, because I, look, some people might go, well, I want I want to make 50%. You know? Yeah, yeah. But what's realistic so that you can at least still make your expenses too? I understand that expenses will probably have to adjust once you retool this equation to pay yourself first. You'll have to probably make some concessions with your expenses and become smarter about how you spend on the operating, on, on whatever you need to do to operate the business. But- Going back to profit first, what's a good benchmark for profit? So what I did was I studied uh, a thousand companies, uh, fiscally elite companies for their industry. So I looked at every industry, manufacturing to um, membership organizations to service businesses, professional services like law firms and so forth, and found that in every industry, there are companies that are fiscally elite. They, they are the best performers in the industry. And what I found is, and this is obvious, they don't perform at the industry average. So many people can compare themselves to the average, which by the way makes no sense. That's like saying, you know, what's the average grade for a student? I want to aspire to be average. Uh, you know, a C is the average grade. I want to aspire to be a C student or I, you know, as an athlete, uh, I aspire to be the average athlete. We, we would never say that uh, in those settings, yet so many businesses say, what's the industry do? I want to achieve the standard of the industry. So instead, I looked at the fiscally elite. And I found that based upon different revenue ranges, so a brand new startup, for example, that maybe is one employee, generates under $250,000 in revenue versus a company that does maybe $1 million or $5 million. I put them in different revenue categories, put the numbers of the fiscally elite. And uh, in these small businesses, like a micro business where it's just the owner operator themselves, they're throwing off 10, 15% profit. They're throwing off another 30 or 40% to pay the owner themselves. So owner pay is a salary, your regular compensation. Profit is that year-end bonus that comes to you, or I suggest distributing it on a quarterly basis. And then even these companies reserve taxes on your behalf. So when that tax bill comes at year-end, the business has allocated that money on your behalf in advance. So you don't have to pay out of your own pocket. And the remainder is maybe 20% for operating expenses in those micro-businesses. Conversely, a $1 million business, a really healthy one, uh, it may be doing 15% in profit, uh, another 20% to owner's pay, another 15% to the taxes, and then the remaining 45% or 55%, whatever it is, going to operating expenses. So what I did was I I created a chart. Of course, it's in the book of all these different categories so you can see what the fiscally elite do. Uh, And I also have that for free download off my website so you don't have to buy the book. But uh, I, I studied it. What I found is it's a mistake for us as business owners to say, hey, what's my industry do? On average, I should aspire to have that. If you do that, you're just going to be an industry average player and you're not going to find innovative ways to achieve that new profit. The, the end lesson is this. By taking your profit first, you are reverse engineering that profitability. So we want to target over time a, a industry breaking profit standard and then we'll become an industry rule breaking business. I love that. You come to this, you kind of touched on this, uh, that you kind of learned from your own experiences. You sold two multi-million dollar companies. You became an angel investor and then you kind of <laughs> lost it all. You oh, everything. Yeah. Everything. So take us to that down point, to that to that rock bottom place. Um, what happened? What went wrong? 
Yeah. So what went wrong was was me, and I realized I was fundamentally flawed from the get go. And and I haven't changed in how I behave. I don't think people can change, but I changed the systems around me. So my bad behavior now becomes a good behavior. What I did was I thought profit was an event, that profit came at year end, and that I had to grow and constantly focus on growth, and that one day profit would happen, maybe at the end of the year, or maybe when a major client came in, uh, or maybe an investor, that there was this trigger point. So that's how I grew those first two businesses. And my beliefs were validated when I sold those companies. One was acquired by private equity, one was acquired by a Fortune 500, and I was convinced then, oh, you just build it by hook or crook, you spend every penny you have and one day someone will buy you. So I said, I'll, I'll do it on steroids. Why don't I start 10 companies simultaneously as an angel investor? So I put my own money into these companies, started them all, and they all, except for one, they all collapsed within six months. I remember I was paying bills for companies that didn't even exist. And uh, simultaneously, I was blowing money too. My per, in my personal life, I was like, oh, I need to have trophies like cars and big houses. and you know, I got to have a sabbatical in Hawaii. Uh, and just living large, and it took me two years. I blew literally every penny I had uh, and went into depression, not, not deep depression, but functional depression for two years, started drinking uh, more than I should. And I'm, I'm not really a drinker and just insomniac. And it was during this period that um, it was ugly, but I it also sparked a reinvestigation of my own life and my understanding of different principles I thought were true. And the big one was that I came to realize profit is not something that is an event, a future thing. It's a habit. Profit needs to be baked into our business. Every transaction, every day, every moment, we need to make small but consistent incremental movements toward more and more profitability. And profitability brings about sustainability. It brings about um, true confidence. It, you know, a lot of people talk about the top line, like, oh, the bigger my revenue is, the better. But that's a vanity number. There's a saying, revenue's vanity, profit is sanity. You know, revenue is, a, is an ego-oriented number. Profit is a health-oriented number. It's a stability. It reduces stress. And so now, what I'm trying to teach others, and, and I've employed for myself, is that let's not focus on the top line. Let's focus on the profit line, the bottom line. Let's grow that and, and the stability there. And ironically, the more focused we are on profit, we have to become more selective in what we do. We have to offer profitable products and services with the focus on profitable clients that we actually become more masterful because now we're doing fewer things for fewer people better. We become masterful what we do. And the greatest irony of all is it sparks the fastest growth. So I, I started a new company today. It's my fastest growing business out of all my businesses. And it's because I focused on profit first from day one. To hear your story, it's almost like you're not shy to risk, but at the same time, the the profit first equation is very kind of risk averse. But being yes. that you're a serial entrepreneur, it's like you you know, it's like if I failed at two businesses, multiple businesses, lost everything, I don't know if I would go back to entrepreneurship, but that just proves that you were meant to be doing what you're doing. Yeah, thank you. I it's uh yeah, risk has never never really frightened me. Um, the not doing something is actually what gives me anxiety, uh, idleness, uh, having an idea and, and not testing it out. Um, so many things I do fail. And when I say by fail, means they don't get the result I want. Um, but I, with, with my businesses, uh, I realize that 
continuing a failure is not good either. I got, yeah, these businesses grew, but to repeat again uh, a growing business that makes no money, the stress is just overwhelming. So I had to find a new way. And uh, you know, I've been living profit first for 10 years now um, and consistently profitable day, you, day in, day out, year in, year out. And even the, the irony is this, my accountant is like, how do you do it? I don't, you know, he went, he doesn't share the exact client details, but he, he has hundreds of clients and 80 or 90% of them are surviving check by check. And he's like, what's the solution? And I'm like, Keith, the irony is it's not the accounting. Like you've been telling me to read income statements and all this stuff for years. It ain't that. The system I use allows me to continue the exact same behavior of logging into my bank accounts and seeing what's there. That That's the only shift. But the effect is profound because, as I already said, it, it starts forcing you to reinvestigate your business and focus on only the things that bring health to your business. Tell me a little more about Mike Michalowicz growing up. What was your childhood like? And do you find that it set you up for the current life you have now financially and entrepreneurially? So the the Mike McCallowitz growing up can be defined in one word, nerd. <laughs> I was a big. Are we nerd. all nerds though? I mean, unless we were like homecoming king and queen, like like yeah, 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 yeah touche, touche. <laughs> so this gangly nerdy kid, and um, what I look back, a couple of things that have came out of that period of my life that this kind of defined me was, you know, you know I was the weakling. I was the ten pound weakling. And, you know, in, in the school days, you know, you know, boys are boys and some fist fights and different things happen. And I was a guy that there was no way to ever win something like that. So I always avoided it. But you can only avoid it for so long unless you find humor. If you can be the jokester, the funny guy, that there was kind of safety in that. And so one part of my character was as a kid, I always liked to joke around. But as I kind of peeled back the onion myself, I said, oh, that was my safety mechanism. It was a protection mechanism, the funny kid. And so in my adult life, that's played out that self-deprecating humor, maybe I'm using it as a protection mechanism. I am. But additionally, it's a, it's a good way to connect with others. Uh, I feel that we're all on a kind of a continuum of life. And, and while some of us will have extreme success and extreme failure, uh, we're all going to have experiences at different phases of our life. So therefore, regardless of your current circumstances, we're all equal. And I, I, I believe that to the core of my soul. And therefore, in my adult life too, I don't see myself as better or even more educated or more knowledgeable about anything. I just see that I'm in a different part of my continuum and I'm sharing that and hoping and I find that others actively share their part of their you know continuum. So uh, those are some lessons that kind of came out of my childhood and, and have supported me in, in spreading the word and, and hopefully serving others. Yeah. When you're the nerd, you're, you, <laughs> it kind of creates this sense of empathy for others that as an adult is such an asset, you know, to have. Yeah. I, I want to fight. It's funny. Wanna, it's not, yeah. You want to be, you want to fight for the underdog. That's exactly it. And, I, and the only tweak to that is I don't want to fight for the underdog. I want to fight with the underdog. I, I feel that, you know, as much as I need to, I need to have confidence and serve myself. I believe that's true for all of us. But I also realize just to stand up one day and say, I'm making my stand and drawing that line in the sand is hard. So my philosophy is I want my arm over your shoulder, if that's the way you feel, uh, and, and fight alongside you. But 
empower you to stand fully on your own. And, and my definition of it is around entrepreneurship. Uh, there's so many facets of life where I think we can help others. Mine is just in the entrepreneurial space because I've been there. I've continued to be the underdog myself. I found tools to stand up on my own and, and I hope these tools serve others to do the same. Well, we kind of went through your biggest failure. Um, is there something else that maybe we should know about? Did uh, we miss yeah, something? I'll well, I'll tell you this about the biggest failure, you know, those turning moments. Um, the moment before I lost everything, and I mean, this was like literally the last second. I got the call from the accountant. He said, you got nothing left. You should file bankruptcy. Um, and gave me kind of the outline what to do. And I didn't have enough money to pay my taxes. I actually asked him, I said, Keith, what, what happens when you don't pay your taxes? He goes, well, you go to jail. Like, I, I think he thought I'm probably kidding. Uh, but he's like, you go to jail. So we got to put you on an installment plan, which was the worst. Um, but the moment then was I came home to my family. And I'm ashamed of this, but I share this because I think it's important for others to hear. I went home to my family and up to that point, I had been a admittedly lying to my wife and to my children, telling them that everything's okay when it was a train wreck, when I was a train wreck and losing money. And that day I could not propagate the lie any further. I couldn't say everything's fine. Uh, I said it's all gone because it was. Uh, so we are losing our house, our cars, uh, my daughter's horseback riding lessons that cost $25 every two weeks could no longer be afforded, um, gone. And I remember I'm sitting there ashamed of myself, crying and sobbing in front of my family, telling this, they were shocked. Uh, and my daughter, nine years old at the time, ran out of the office to go to her bedroom. And I, I thought she was just running away. And I also felt that was the solution was to run away. But she wasn't running away. She actually ran to her room to get her piggy bank. And she came back down to our table, kitchen table, put it down and slid it to me and said, Daddy, I'm going to support this. And that was the, the turning moment in that there's, I felt such honor and pride in my daughter, uh, such strength from her, such commitment. And I also realized that everything was lost then. I, I was ashamed and embarrassed of myself, my ego, my arrogance, but that there could be a fresh start. And listen, it, it took two more years. It wasn't like the next morning I sprung out of bed and said, oh, I found the solution. Mm-hmm. No, I, I went through depression. But I also, that was the seedling for change and um, and realize that you know for us all of us to get through this world, whatever found challenge we're facing, you know we need the support and help of others, and we need to contribute to others. That's so. such a great story. I often ask guests, "What's your so money moment?" I think that was it. You yeah. know, um, because it's just, just a reminder. You know, your children. Um, such a mature daughter you have. I mean, she could have run away and never come back, which is what you thought she was doing. And that would have been a totally healthy, normal reaction probably for a nine-year-old because it's a lot to take in. But instead, she wanted to step up to the plate and be uh, your champion. So that is, um, I think, very much indicative of your parenting style. And so that's uh, that's priceless. Thank you. Yeah, that was a life changer. And now today, so at her office, she's she's literally one room over from me right now, working away. She's Aww. she said her nineteenth birthday is approaching. So oh, that was ten years ago. My gosh, ten years ago, almost ten years ago. Is that unbelievable? Wow. And um, it's funny. I I was driving her to college, and uh, we were talking on the way. 
And I said, Hey, this is only about two years ago. I said, remember that day when you, when you brought the piggy bank down? Like that was that day. And I mean this, it will literally be my final thought before I leave this world. My final breath. I know I will remember that moment because it's so vivid. And I said, remember that? And she looked at me, she goes, what are you talking about? She doesn't remember anything. Oh, no. And my heart sunk for a moment saying the most important day of my life, she doesn't remember. But then I realized it, to her, that was the natural mm, response. Right. This is her character. She does that for everybody, every situation. Mm-hmm. She puts herself out to support them. And that's, that's now become the most impactful thing is that, you know, what's our true character? It plays out so naturally that others don't even, I mean, that we don't even realize it as significant or important, but the impact we can have on others when we're truly ourselves can be profound. Well said. And so what is a habit that you, that you practice in your personal financial life, Mike, that, um, given all the, you know, trials and tribulations that you've had, what's something that now you've learned from that, that you practice in your, and we know what you practice in your business, but how about in your personal life? So my business is translated to my personal life. I have multiple accounts for my business. My home finances, I have always personal accounts. So we have our vacation account. We're actually going to the beach uh, coming up soon. It's already all been paid for in cash because there's a vacation account. And we already have next year's, the 2018 vacation account already accumulating and, and reserved. We have we have a wedding account. You know, my daughter's 19. I'm not hoping she gets married uh, soon. I hope she takes her time. Um, but when she's ready to get married, that money's been reserved for her. Uh, we have an emergency fund because, you know, I, I don't know what's around the, the corner and maybe tomorrow my finances fall to the ground, but we have now money reserved and it, and, and I'm also debt free. That's probably the biggest thing. I don't no single, no credit card debt, no car loans paid, like no debt, no house loan all paid. But it, the, the important thing is that's a result of a discipline of over well, now 10 years, right? I, I, it's not like I was debt free. Actually, I was wallowing in personal debt 10 years ago. I remember I had over $50,000 of just credit card debt. And on the radio, uh, I was listening one day and they say, oh, the average American has $4,000 of credit card debt. And saying to myself, I've never so badly wanted to be average. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I, it's it, the process has been chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. And, and one l- little last tip I want to share. I learned this from David Ramsey or Dave Ramsey, the, the author of The Total Money Makeover, a fabulous book on personal finance. And in his book, he explains this concept of the snowball effect, that when we are wallowing in debt and have all these different debts, to instead of go after the highest interest rate debt, which makes logical sense, by the way, to instead go after the smallest debt first and eradicate it. Because when we get that first debt off, even if it's like a hundred bucks loan to a friend. Feels good. Feels good. You get to tear up that statement. So that's how we did it. I started going after the smallest debts first. And the last debt I paid off was the big one. And it's done. It's gone. And it just, every time I'd rip up a statement, I'd be emboldened. I was excited because the statement's ripped up. And that payment I was making toward that small debt now gets added on to the next debt in line where I'm already making some payments, the minimum payment. Now I'm adding more financial power behind it because I eradicated that first debt. And it builds this kind of snowball or this momentum. And that, that was a big, big tool for me in my personal finances. 
Well, I think with any book that has to do with money or business, it's not just the ones that are successful and the messages that are successful have not just to do with the fact that, well, the math adds up in this book. And so clearly it's logical. It'll work for you, but that it has to really speak to our minds and our behaviors. And that's what you do so well and what Dave Ramsey does so well and why I'm not surprised that uh, Profit First is now experiencing a second life. Congratulations, Mike. Thank you so much. And by the way, everybody, Mike has many other books, which have also equally funny, great titles. <laughs> the Pumpkin Plan, The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, Surge. So check out MikeMichalowitz.com and uh, hope your daughter doesn't get married anytime soon. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> if you'd like to learn more about Mike, his website is MikeMichalowitz.com. He's on Twitter at Mike Michalowitz. The book, again, is called Profit First. Thanks to Mike for joining us on So Money, and thanks to you for tuning in. I hope this was inspiring, and I hope your day is so money.